Well, every four years, we have a presidential election. This is a time where we get together, we try and be thoughtful, we try and be wise, and we choose from a number of candidates from a variety of parties. Now, usually the way this plays out is the candidates are primarily from the Democratic or the Republican side, but there's a number of options to choose from. And every four years, either a president is reaffirmed in his role or a new president is established and he steps into power. The president-elect officially takes, we might say, the throne of America. He becomes what we call the commander-in-chief, the leader of the free world. And as they step into their role, what we find is that along with this role comes a whole host of expectations— things that we expect them to do or not to do, hopes that we might have. We have questions on how they might handle things like foreign relations, right? Are they going to create more peace? Are they going to create more war? Are they going to engage our allies and our enemies wisely or foolishly? We, we ask how they're going to handle uh, finances, right? What is the, the budget going to be like for their presidency? How are they going to deal with the national debt? What is the unemployment rate going to look like? The questions go on and on. How are they going to deal with social issues? What is immigration going to look like in their worldview? How are they going to deal with the issue of life, right? There's just this whole list. You could make this whole list of expectations for this job description that we expect the president to step into. And depending on how they deal with those whole number of issues that we put on them, is the way that we kind of navigate whether they have been a success or a failure in the role that they have been voted in on, to the role that they have been appointed to. Now, as we think about kind of our setting, and as we transition to ancient Israel, what we have to think about during the time of Jesus, what we have to recognize is that there was no presidential election of any sort in any way that is similar to what we have today. Instead, what you were stuck with was primarily two groups. On one hand, you had Rome. And Rome swung in after Greece, they took over, and they were the superpower of the day. And they were viewed by the Jewish community as the oppressor, right? Because despite the fact that the Jews had some semblance of freedom in their land, they really couldn't step too far outside of the bounds for fear of punishment, like they experienced about 40 years after the time of Jesus when their temple was destroyed by Rome. So Rome was seen as the aggressor. They were seen as the oppressor. On the other hand, there was the Jewish religious leadership, primarily made up of the Sadducees. And they had their hub right in the temple precinct in Jerusalem itself. And they were the ones that would establish what it looked like to rightly be in relationship with Israel's God. The issue was, is they were kind of corrupt themselves. And so some groups start rising up in opposition to them, some of them known as the Pharisees, who you might be familiar with. So neither of these groups, Rome nor the religious leadership of Israel, was the perfect fit for the people. And so what you found in Jesus' day is the, the Jewish community was always looking forward. They're always looking for what is God going to do next? When is he going to come in and make things right? When, he is go when is he going to purify temple worship? When is he going to throw off the yoke of Rome? When is he going to establish God's kingdom in the way that it's meant to be once and for all? 
And so as neither of them are a perfect fit, when Jesus arrives and he's gaining some semblance of momentum and people start asking, is this the king that we've been waiting for? You can understand that similar to the president of today, there's a whole list of expectations that they had for Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. All throughout Jesus' ministry in John's gospel, he's been going to and from Jerusalem. He's been in the region of Judea and then all in the surrounding provinces within the promised land. And he's been doing miracles and he's been making claims and he's been riling up the leadership in Jerusalem because he doesn't fit cleanly within their categories and within their buckets. And the thing that he did most recently, the great miracle that he had done was he raised his friend Lazarus. It was a very big deal. I, re- I remember Andrew's sermon, just thinking about this. There was actually two sermons that he preached on this. The passion that was around that, seeing Jesus' heart for his friends, seeing him weep with the death of Lazarus and watching him demonstrate God's goodness as he raised him from the dead. And in order to raise Lazarus, Jesus had to go to a town called Bethany, which was in Judea, which was near Jerusalem, which was the hot spot of conflict. And so what you saw is Jesus' disciples actually expected that as they're heading towards Bethany, that's just going to be the end of it. There, Jesus is going to die, and they were going to just go and die with him. What we find is that if Jesus was seeking safe harbor, he should not have gone and raised Lazarus. And yet what we find is that Jesus is not seeking safety. Throughout the gospel— He has never been seeking safety. His purpose has been far greater than that. And so as we get into this latter part of chapter 12, what we're going to see is that Jesus, one last time, has set his face towards Jerusalem for one last Passover, where they're going to be going and slaughtering the lambs. And what we're going to see with Jesus is he's now in a trajectory where he, the Lamb of God, is walking chapter by chapter closer to his own slaughter. And as he steps into Jerusalem today, he's not only going to claim to be king, he's not only going to take that role upon himself, but he's going to rile up the expectations of what it means for him to be king as he takes these necessary steps towards his throne. And as he does this, we have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with who is this king? What does it mean for Jesus to rule and to reign? And depending on the type of king that he is, that impacts the type of citizens of his kingdom that we should actually be. So let's start in verse 12. Why don't we stand in honor of God's word? We're going to look at more than these, these first few verses, but let's, I won't have you stand and sit all a bunch. So we'll just start with this in honor of what the Lord has said. Let's start in verse 12. And we're going to work our way to uh, verse 19 to start out this morning. It says this, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion." Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. 
Look, the world has gone after him. You can go ahead and have a seat. First thing we see in the text this morning is that Jesus begins to clarify his kingship. Jesus clarifies his kingship. So it says the next day, starting in verse 12, this is actually most likely the Sunday before Jesus' resurrection. So if you're familiar with that kind of whole span before Easter of Holy Week, it's the Sunday before Easter, if we're looking at the calendar. So the Sunday before Jesus' resurrection, he heads into Passover, or he, said, he heads into Jerusalem for what it says is the feast, which is Passover. And as I said, he's been gaining popularity. And his popularity has not just been about any one thing, it's primarily been about Lazarus. And I think this makes sense for us. Like if I had a neighbor, right, someone in the neighboring town that could raise people from the dead, like I'm going to go and try and figure out what's going on, right? And so there is hype going on between these different villages. And Passover is the natural place where all of the Jewish community is coming to Jerusalem. And so they're like, this dude that's been raising people from the dead, he's going to be there. We want to see what is going on. But there's something that's really interesting that happens, And it said he heads into Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, people start grabbing palm branches and waving them. And that's a very significant symbol. In the ancient world, in in actually Rome, Greece, and in Israel, the palm branch was this symbol of victory. But uniquely in Israel, it had these connotations of nationalism with it. Because a couple hundred years before, when the Maccabees had had kicked the Seleucids out of the temple, kind of the the thing that we recognize on the holiday of, of Hanukkah, part of the symbol of what had happened there, part of what was waved in respect of that victory was palm branches. And within time, palm branches began to get printed actually on their coins. And so it was this symbol of Israel's nationalism. It was this symbol of who they were as an independent people. And so as they're waving these palm branches, they're hailing Jesus as a national symbol. They're recognizing him as king. And so we can glean from this that they kind of, in some sense, get that, that he might be the Messiah. Right? That's what the Messiah is, the anointed king from David's line. They seem to get it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The issue is, is what kind of king is he? And what kind of king do they expect him to be? And we're going to see this as the text goes on. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees, and they have actually the complete opposite reaction to him. Right? They're not waving palm branches. They're here and they're exacerbated. They're, they're just exhausted because they've been trying to kind of foil his plans and they've been unable to do that. They're realizing their efforts are not working. People are flocking to Jesus. They say, see, you are gaining nothing. When they say that, they're not talking about like their own uh, personal gain. It's an idiom. They're saying like, we're not gaining any ground. All of these things that we have been doing in trying to stop him have not come to anything The world has gone after him. And in the midst of these two polarized sides, I want us to notice Jesus. Just think about Jesus here. You have these two polarized groups. One group thinks that he's everything, and they think that he's the king with all of their expectations, that he's going to throw off the yoke of Rome. The other side, the Pharisees, think he's nothing, that he is not who they are. That, they're not, that he's not the king who they're looking for, that he should be wholeheartedly rejected, that in fact he is not just someone who's causing trouble, but he's dangerous, because by this point they have tried to kill him. 
And the reality is Jesus does not actually fit in either of their buckets. Because what we see in Jesus is, yes, he is the Messiah. He is the king, but he has not come in line with the expectations that the crowd has. He's actually come to make himself, as the Pharisees think he is, to make himself nothing so that us who are the humble people could be restored back to God. He is the one who is at the highest point, who has brought himself down to the lowest point, and neither side seems to get it. There are such divided responses around him. It actually just reminds me of the polarization that exists even in our country, in our context today, there is a similar polarization going on around Jesus. One side gets his role. They get he's the king, but they don't get his job description. And when there's the disconnect between those two things, that's very dangerous. It's super dangerous. The other side, the Pharisees, realizes they're losing control, and they don't even want to acknowledge Jesus' position, despite the fact that the things that he's doing bear significant weight, like raising Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus is super intentional. Look at, look at what he says. One commentator pointed this out. I think it's, it's very interesting. Verse 14, and Jesus found a donkey. He goes out of his way. The donkey doesn't just show up and he hops on. He finds a donkey, sits on it, and he steps into a very specific role that the Jewish community had been waiting for from Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, it talks about the king of Israel, and he is a humble king. And so as the Jewish community is waving these palm branches, the symbol of nationalism, thinking that Jesus is going to meet all of their expectations of national identity, national reclamation of what it means to be autonomous, what it means to be under their own leadership, Jesus says, no, 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 I am the merciful king. I am the humble king. He comes from a posture of humility. If he was coming in this posture of conquering, he would have rode a chariot or a horse. This would be normal for a king in their day, but that's not what Jesus does. It's very interesting, actually. This isn't in my notes, but I think it's worth saying. In the rabbinic literature, what you find is there's this tradition that the Jewish community has that if, the, if they were worthy, then the Messiah would show up riding a horse. If they were not worthy, then the Messiah would show up riding on a donkey. It's very interesting. Actually, it's if they are worthy, he would come on the clouds. That's actually more specific. He'd come on the clouds. If they're unworthy, he would come riding on a donkey. Now, if this tradition dates back to the time of Jesus, then what we find is that John is echoing this understanding that Jesus is coming and clearly the religious leadership in Jerusalem is unworthy to receive his kingship, but he comes nonetheless. This leads me to two questions. Question number one, how have we rejected Jesus' kingship just outright? How have we taken Jesus as king and said, nope, I don't want that? Most of us would not say, like, I reject him full tilt. But I think there's areas in our lives that we have to think really clearly about that whether we've guarded them from his kingship, right? Are there places in our lives where we don't allow him to have sovereignty, where we don't allow him to have his reign? Do we seek him first or do we seek out ourselves or other people or other things for comfort and wisdom when we're trying to make real decisions? I think one of the ways that we can process how we're dealing with Jesus and his kingship is do we go to him in prayer when things are number one, difficult, and number two, when there's a big decision to be made? 
depending on how we deal with those, if we go to Jesus first, I think it's a sign that we're respecting his position. If we don't, then I think we need to think critically about have we overlooked who he actually is to us and how good he actually intends to be to us. But for those of us who maybe haven't rejected Jesus' kingship full tilt, maybe we are like the crowds. In what ways have we maybe misunderstood Jesus' kingship? Have we kind of mixed things up about who he intends to be? Now, this can be very challenging, and and I would argue quite dangerous when we misunderstand Jesus as king and yet affirm him as king nonetheless, because our misunderstandings of Jesus as king lead to false expectations about him as king. And those false expectations about him as king can lead to us being very disappointed in who he is when in fact he never intended to be certain things to us. So have we understood thoroughly that Jesus' reign is by nature sacrificial and not tyrannical, right? He doesn't assert his reign. He comes from a, a, a place of servitude, from, from loving, from a loving posture. Have we recognized that Jesus' reign as king is by definition selfless and not self-serving? This is very important practically for us, Because we are supposed to reflect who he is as his disciples. We are having, by the Spirit, the image of God remade in us as we reflect God's goodness. And so if we misunderstand Jesus as king and how he rules and how he reigns over the creation, and then we go out trying to represent him, we actually can misrepresent him to those around us. And people can end up rejecting Jesus on the grounds of our misrepresentation and not on who he actually is. And so we want to make sure that there is consistency between us getting him and who we represent him as being. Let's consider what else we see. Let's look at verses 20 to 33. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, again, Passover, were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Let's go to verse 33. uh, Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So we transition from Jesus clarifying kind of who he is as king. Yes, he's king, but he's come as the humble king, to now communicating how that humility is expressed 
It is communicated through the necessity of his death. But he's going to talk a lot about his death. I want us to start in verse 20 here by noticing the irony. Remember what the Pharisees said? They, see, they said, see that you are gaining nothing. What's the next thing that they say? It's not rhetorical. What's the next thing that they say? You have Bibles in front of you. Who's gone after him? Right, the world, right? And it's, they're exaggerating, of course, right? But there's irony to be had here because what's the next thing you see in verse 20? There's Greeks showing up. Now, these are God-fearers who value Jewishness, but they were afraid to get circumcised, but they still want to go to the holidays. That's how this rolls out, right? And so they show up in Jerusalem, and now the nations are coming. So not only are Jewish people flocking to him, but now there's people that are representing the rest of the world that are showing up to Jesus. So there's real irony. What they say is actually truer than they know about it, right? And so they go to Philip, and Philip goes to Andrew, and they both go to Jesus and say, hey, these dudes, they want to come and talk to you. Now the question is, why do they go to Philip? Right? And there, it, it's not very clear. There's all speculation on it. One of the main reasons could be because Philip has a Greek name, and he's from Bethsaida. Okay? And Bethsaida is right by this whole group called the Decapolis of Greek cities. And so they probably heard his name and potentially thought that he could speak Greek. And so they show up and they go and they ask him to go and talk to Jesus. And so they have this chain of communication and they, they say, hey, these guys want to talk to you. And Jesus for some reason, this triggers to him that his hour has come. This is very, this is a huge moment in John's gospel. Because all throughout John's gospel, here's kind of things that we've been hearing. They wanted to arrest Jesus, but they could not do it because his hour had not yet come. They sought to entrap him. They sought to stone him, but they couldn't because it was not yet his hour. All throughout John's gospel, you can just check it. If you go through it, just circle all the places where it says this. It has been constantly telling us that Jesus, in God's providence, in God's sovereignty, has not been able to be captured and killed because his hour had not yet arrived. And all of a sudden, he shows up in Jerusalem. The nations are coming. The religious leaders are upset at him. They're waving palm branches. The crowd is. And he says, now my hour has come. And we're going to see a shift in the text. We're going to see that his hour for glorification has arrived. And when we think of glorification, what might we, what might we imagine? Probably something of being lifted up high and exalted and recognized and honored. And yet the way that Jesus describes it is far less comfortable and far less, maybe on the surface, beautiful. He says, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In this weird kind of turn of events, Jesus describes his glorification. The same Greek word can be described his honoring, the place in which he's honored as his death. And what he tells them then is that his death is not just advantageous. His death in God's plan is not just helpful for what God is doing. In fact, what he says is his death is necessary. It is absolutely essential. 
if there's going to be a harvest for God's family, right? Unless a grain of wheat falls and dies or remains alone. So if Jesus does not die, then he is the only one who will be raised, right? Or, well, at that point, I guess he doesn't need to be raised. He's the only one who will receive glory. But if Jesus dies and then he's raised, then we find we have what Paul calls a first fruits kind of situation in 1 Corinthians, that because, his ra- that because he's raised, we can then be raised. It bears much fruit, as Jesus says. If, all, if people from, from all the world, if people from all the nations, as Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself, right? If people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to be raised from the dead as they trust in Jesus, then he must go for the cross. He must go to the cross for them. I want us to observe Jesus' reaction to this. I think it's really important that we just see this, the, the full humanity of Jesus in this moment. We saw him with the raising of Lazarus that he wept over the death of his friend, that he recognized that death was not a good thing and he partook in the um, real grieving emotions that go with that. And now here, as he thinks about his own death, what does he say? Now is my soul troubled. Jesus is feeling the weight of what is about to happen to him and yet he is completely submitted to the Father. We need to recognize that what Jesus was doing was not easy. Like, we can't look at him and say, well, he's God and he's perfectly obedient. So, of course, he's just going to go to the cross and that's going to be it. He's not a robot, right? What he is doing has real weight on him. He identifies with us in that. I think that that's really important that we understand that perfect obedience on Jesus' part does not mean apathy. He is not emotionless towards what is about to go on. It actually, it, it, what characterizes Jesus' obedience is surrender. That despite his emotions, he's willing to step into death for his people in submission and obedience to the Father. So as we sit here this morning, and as we think about, okay, here are the places in my life that the Lord wants me to step into. Some of them are probably more comfortable than others. Right, to follow Jesus in obedience. There are times where it's like, okay, of course I can do that. But there's other times where it's like, God, could you really want that from me? Could you really want me to do that? That doesn't feel comfortable, Lord. And I think in those moments where we're squirming under the pressure of God's invitation to the abundant life and obedience that he has for us, we can recognize here that Jesus also felt that. And even now, he understands that and identifies with us. But there's this reversal that happens in the text when he says this. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is where the cross takes on a whole new level of beauty as Jesus starts talking about what it means for him to be glorified. Because when he is up there on the cross, this is what he's saying, as he's up there on the cross, the most humiliating form of punishment in the ancient world, as he's up there dying and people are looking on him and scoffing at him and looking upon him and judgment, right? As the powers of darkness, as Satan, believe that they've finally won, that they've killed the son, here's what Jesus says, that it's actually the world that will be sitting under judgment because the wrath of God will be being poured out on the Son in place of the world. This is how we see God's love demonstrated. 
And as he is up there dying on the cross, he will be uh, forfeiting the enemy's ability to accuse his brothers and sisters, us who will trust in the Lord, to accuse us. He'll be forfeiting the enemy's ability to do that as he gives us the righteousness that he has. This is what Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 talks about, that as Jesus is up there on the cross, nailing our sins to the cross with him, that he is disarming, as Paul says, the rulers and the, and the powers and the, the authorities. As he is doing what appears to be humiliating, he is actually the one humiliating the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians. This is how Jesus demonstrates his kingship. Throughout the text, they've been misunderstanding it, and they'll continue to misunderstand it. But this is how Jesus demonstrates his kingship, that in what appears to be weakness and loss is actually the victory of God and the mercy of God being put on full display for the world to see. So we think about response to this. I think Jesus is quite clear-cut. It's not always that we, we look at the text and it's like, well, here's, here's what we see going on. Here's how you, you should respond. But that's actually what we see in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus says, if we are going to receive eternal life through him as king, then we must be willing to follow this king wherever he leads. And in context, he's talking about his death. He says that we must be willing to fully relinquish our life. Now, he's not saying we will necessarily die for him in that sense, but we must be willing to hold our, even our life with open hands if we are going to call ourselves truly his people. When we look at Jesus here, he is perfectly willing to die for us. The question is, are we willing to lose our life for him? This is like the most countercultural thing on the planet. This is the opposite of looking out for number one. This is the opposite of any form of self-preservation, right? But when we look at Jesus, we see that he is more interested in reconciling us to God than preserving his comfort. In fact, he says it's for this purpose that he is going to be made uncomfortable. It's for this purpose that he is going to die. So the question is, as we step into God's plans and purposes for our life, do we view it as our purpose to give up our life for the sake of our king? See, there is no neutral zone, as it says here. We either seek to preserve our life and lose it. This is not just in John's gospel. This is throughout the gospel accounts. This is very consistent in what Jesus says to his followers. We either seek to preserve our life and lose it, or we look to Jesus, die to ourselves, and gain the hope of eternal life in God. The Apostle Paul echoes this in the book of Galatians. In my, my favorite verse, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see the kind of paradox of this, right? I no longer live, I've been crucified with Christ and now that I live, I live in Christ. Can the same be said of us? Do we take that posture and that position towards Jesus ourselves? Final thing we see in the text is that we are invited to a timely response, just as they are. Look at verses uh, 34 through uh, the beginning of 36 with me. Draw this to a close as he says this. 
So the crowd answered him, right? He just said that he was going to die. The crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the, that the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus, had said, uh, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from him. That's the latter part of verse 36. So Jesus clarifies, or John, excuse me, clarifies for us that Jesus is talking about his death. In case it wasn't clear enough that as he's talking about his glorification, he's talking about his death, John makes it very clear for the readers. But the crowd that is with Jesus also picks up on this. They kind of get that he's hinting at his death. And so it leads them to a very serious question. They thought that the Messiah had come to reign and that was it, right? So how can, they, how can he say that the Messiah has to die? That doesn't make sense in their understanding. Now, we might look at them and say, well, how did you miss it? The reality is, is if, there, if you read certain texts in the Hebrew Bible uh, prior to Jesus coming, prior to his death and resurrection, you can actually get pretty confused about how this kind of glorification process is meant to play out. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9. I think I have a slide for it. Isaiah chapter 9. This is a text that we usually look at when we're thinking about Christmas, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But hear what it says next. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, so if you don't have the full picture, it makes sense that they're confused. It makes sense that they expect Jesus as the Messiah to show up, to take power and reign from this time forth and forevermore more. And so they're trying to figure this out. Adding to that, he's talking about this one who is called the Son of Man. And Jesus loves to talk about himself as the Son of Man, but he loves to do it in third person. So we'll say things like, the Son of Man has been handed over to the hands of sinners and is going to go and be crucified, right? He uses that language here in verse uh, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so the Son of Man language comes from Daniel chapter 7. I don't have time to kind of sort into all of that, but it's this kind of one who receives from God the Father, all the glory and honor and the kingdoms of the world. And they seem to tie the Son of Man to the Messiah. They seem to knit them together and they, they say to him, how can you say that the Messiah is going to die? Right? They had just hailed him as king. They'd been waving the palm branches. They were excited that he was going to finally throw off the yoke of Rome. He was going to purify temple worship, right? They, they, they were all excited about it. Now he's saying he's going to die. How can that be? And who's this Son of Man? Who is he? How can he be lifted up? What are we supposed to think of this? And Jesus' response is awesome. I love it. He had called himself the light of the world, and so he employs that language. Jesus says this. He says, I will be with you just a little bit longer. I'm only going to be here for a little bit more. You need to turn to me. They have all these questions, right? Who's the son of man? What's he going to do? Jesus says, turn to me. You need to trust in me. You see, they've picked up on his reign. 
They get that he is going to reign and rule, but they miss his suffering. This is very interesting. There's actually a, 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 a subgroup of Jewish thought, a subcategory of Jewish thought that actually believed that there was going to be two messiahs that would come, that there would be one that was called the Messiah son of David that would be glorified, that would rule and reign, and the Messiah son of Joseph, one who would suffer for the people. The reason this it started to become an idea is because they're reading their Hebrew Bible and they're seeing that there's some anointed king that is going to reign and there's some anointed king that is going to suffer, but they miss the point that the suffering servant is also the conquering king. See, they've missed the point that their salvation requires the king first to die for them and then be raised to glory. They miss the point that in order for there to be peace between them and God, someone would have to make peace and satisfy God's justice. But despite their questions, this is very interesting, Jesus does not answer them directly. They have all these questions about who he is, and he could clarify the things that I just said, right? He's far wiser than I. He could say, well, maybe you're expecting two messiahs, but there's only one. Maybe you've overlooked some things about how this whole plan of salvation for you is supposed to play out. He could say that, but that's not what he does. He says, you need to trust me. And I think that this is uh, indicative of something. It's indicative of the, of the fact that the most important thing for them was not that they had more information, but that they responded to the information that they did have. See, even for us, despite the fact that, that we follow Jesus in faith, we don't believe it's blind faith, right? We believe that there is real good intellectual and historical grounds to follow Jesus as the Messiah. We believe that there is evidence for what we actually believe. But we do have to recognize that it is not by sight, right? That's what Hebrews says. That's the definition of faith, something that we can be confident in even though we don't necessarily see it. Now, one day our faith will be turned to sight at Jesus' return, but we have to recognize that it is still walking by faith and not by sight. And while it's a good thing that we gain more information, that we seek to intellectually ground our beliefs, what we have to get is that information apart from Jesus puffs up. Information apart from the king can actually lead to pride. And information is good only insofar as it leads and reinforces our obedience to the king. Only insofar as it reinforces our response to Jesus. And so as we sit here this morning, I'm sure we have lots of questions about our faith, about Jesus. And as we go through our life, we're going to have lots of questions about what God is up to and who he is and how this all plays out and what is the scripture talking about and all of that. Those are good questions. And you should seek out answers to those questions because I think that for the most part, there are clear answers to those questions. But the reality is, is are we responding to what we already know? One wise pastor once told me, I was in a conversation with him, and I told him, I said, I think the church just needs to be more educated. This was me being ignorant at the time. And he said to me, no, I think the church needs to uh, be more obedient to the things that they already know. And I didn't actually agree with him at the time. I came to agree with him. And I think it was wise words. 
that he said as, as you just go and, and you exist within the church family for long enough. It's actually, Andrew, don't tell him that I said that he's wise, okay? So, so it was, a, but it was a really good conversation years ago that him and I had had. But as we look at this, here, here's the thing. These people that he's talking to had less information about what Jesus was going to do than we do now. And he still felt it more necessary to call them to a response. How much more is that true of us after having seen Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension, after having the Holy Spirit poured out upon us? This is something we need to think very critically about. The problem that the people have that Jesus is talking to is that they have externalized all of this issue going on. They misunderstand, they get he's the king, but they misunderstand who he is as the king. They, get, they, they think, we'll say, they believe that he has come for them. They believe that he's shown up as the king to address those people, to address the people that have oppressed them, that he's coming to throw off the, the slavery and the bondage of Rome, that he has come to address the corrupt religious leadership, that he is going to reestablish temple worship, that he is going to deal with all of the things around them and make the world right for them. But that's not what Jesus says. What Jesus says is they need to come to him before they are consumed with darkness and lost. In other words, the problem is not foreign, it is domestic. Right? The problem is not far, it is very near. In fact, it is something going on within them. The issue is not only that Rome is broken and sinful, the issue, just like us, is that they are. That their hearts are corrupted, that their hearts are by nature hell-bent against going against what God has unless God does something within us. Right? Otherwise, it would be pointless for Jesus to say this. Right? If there wasn't an issue that, w- that needed to be addressed within them, Jesus would not have told them to turn to him. But he does. And the same thing is true for us today. See, they've overlooked that they, like us, have a sin issue that needs to be addressed. They, like us, are equally in need of not just any king, but the king who is willing to go to the cross. Because as he goes to the cross, in this counterintuitive victory— Through Jesus' death, that is where true life is going to be found. Because on the third day, it says he was raised. And as we follow him into his death and are united to him, we are also united to him in life. It is only if he dies and takes upon himself the judgment that we deserve, that we receive the mercy that we do not deserve. So as you come to the table today, as we take of the the body and the blood, as we remember Jesus being glorified through his death, I want to encourage us to turn to him while there's still time. I could give us some specific ways to maybe respond, some specific application points, but in my experience, when I'm sitting in the pews, maybe you feel this too, I usually know some things that God is doing in my life. I usually can identify some ways that he's already stirring me, that I show up on Sunday morning and he continues to move in me. And so I want to encourage you that while there is time to respond to him, that we commit ourselves to doing that here. 
before we come to the table. And then we actually go out and respond to him appropriately. I'm, this is not me trying to be alarmist, but the reality is this. This is Jesus' language, right? Turn uh, before the darkness overtakes you, right? We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when Jesus returns. But the text is clear, the scriptures are clear, that once one of those things happens, that we sit in judgment, that we are held accountable to the things that we have done or overlooked. Now, do we stand in the righteousness of Jesus for eternal life? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that what we do doesn't matter. We still bear a responsibility to follow him today. We still should want to bear that responsibility to follow him as his people. And I want us to be a people that, as the scripture says, that when he returns, don't shrink back in fear and say, oh, Lord, I should have did that. I could have stepped out and done that for you. That would have been really cool, but I didn't. I want us to be a people who stand in confidence before our king and say, Lord, I did everything that I could. I knew you wanted me to step out in this, but I stepped I stepped out anyway despite my, my lack of comfort and I watched you do something awesome. And now I stand here praising you because I watched you do that great thing. I want us to be those people. And as we come to the table, I want us to remember that Jesus does not just invite us to die, but he invites us to live. Because as he lives, we live. As the Messiah is, so it is with his people. I want us to remember that saying. As it is with the Messiah, so it is with his people. As it is with his death, so it is with us as we die to ourselves. But as it is with him in his resurrection, so too will it be with us one day, where we are raised to new life, in a new creation, where there is no more death, where there is no more tears, where there is no more pain, where there is no more sin, where the darkness does not overtake you. But there is only light. It says there's no need for, for any lamp, no need for the sun, because God dwells with his people. His glory is with them. I want us to be a people who look forward to that day as we await the king's return, as we await the king not just returning after being the suffering servant, but now as the one who will rule and reign forever. And I want us to respond to him now in light of the then. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come to the table remembering Jesus' glorification. Father, thank you that you sent your son Jesus that you sent him to be glorified in a way that we would never have expected. That you sent him to reign and take his throne by wearing first a crown of thorns, by dying for us. Lord, I pray for us who are here, no matter where we're at today in our walk with Jesus, that we would, that we would gaze upon the king on the cross and that your spirit would convict us of sin and lead us to him on that cross. And that your spirit would encourage us and give us faith to trust in him. And Father, I pray that uh, as we go from here, that we would remember, that we would rejoice in the fact that he didn't just die, but he was raised for our glorification. That as he was raised and given a new body, so too will we one day be raised to be with him, to be with you dwelling with us forever. Help us to look forward to that day where we can look Jesus in the face and know that we have been good and faithful servants. Not because of our work, but because of your spirit's work 
powerfully moving us and working within us. Father, as we come to the table today, help us to remember Jesus well and help us to bring him glory in our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen.